Get your microphone working. Sometimes it's uh, just a restart is all that's needed. All right. Well, that's that's good. I um, I thought I was going to have to restart because I was messing around with the uh, the soundboard app, and uh, but 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 I didn't get it to work, and and I didn't manage to break anything. So we're good to go. All right, we are good to go. I'm I'm sorry. I uh, I did what I normally do. Came to my desk. Uh, uh, got my headphones and my microphone untangled from uh, its storage space, which is behind my display, and. Uh, plugged in my dongle, plugged the USB into the dongle, and uh, I always go to, to settings to make sure that it's uh, showing Rode Podcaster, and it was not. Huh. And then I unplugged it. I plugged it back in. Nothing. I switched USB-C ports. Nothing. Uh, restarted um, Skype for some reason thinking that might be an issue. Anyway, uh, so I just restarted the whole thing, and here we are. Very good. Well, your your audio is cutting out a little bit, but um, it's okay. Uh, do, you have, do you have Dropbox turned on? I do. It's, no, I don't. Okay. Cool. Uh, and let me let me turn everything else off because that's yeah. I had that all turned off too. Um, also, my I, my internet uh, in my in my office has has not been fantastic. So hopefully. We will. How am I? How am I now? Am you're I still good. You're good. You're uh, what are they? What do they? What do they say? Uh, five by five. You're five, five by five. five. <laughs> All right. Um, so. So, yeah. So. So, Don, um, I, I like to update you on all the things that break um, in my in my life because uh, adulting sometimes is hard. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we were supposed to record this podcast yesterday, but I could not because uh, I became a Uber driver, uh, informal Uber driver or Lyft driver uh, for the day as um, the my lovely wife, Danielle, her van uh, decided that it would – uh, it needed a new alternator at a very uh, specific time, which was right before we were going to record this podcast. So I uh, spent most of yesterday driving around Raleigh, uh, picking kids up, dropping kids off, picking Danny up, dropping her off. Uh, and so, uh, but here we are. Here we are today. So yeah. Have- well, and, and we should let the listeners know that we did uh, we did discuss uh, the 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 concept, new concept for the show, which would be uh, driving in cars uh, with food safety nerds. Uh, getting coffee slash fixing alternators. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Um, we, we we squashed that idea pretty quick. I think we did. We did. Uh, it was. Uh, I thought maybe the the audio would not be very good. Uh, yeah, oh, it would definitely not be very good. Um. So. Uh. So here we. So here we are. Um. I. So something else that that happened this week, which I wanted to talk about, was a very cool talk that I went to, um, we, uh, our, my department hosted Temple Grandin of, uh, the famous movie entitled, uh, Temple Grandin, uh, as well as many other things, including, um, animal behaviors and animal welfare and designing, uh, food processing plants. Um, and, uh, Temple came and spoke, did a, did a public lecture on, Wednesday night, and I, I don't know if you would guess, but Food Safety made an appearance in her talk. Awesome. Yes, and uh, she so she actually said uh, so her 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 talk was really about um, uh, she has a, a new book, a relatively new book that was published about autism and um, 
uh, individuals on the autism spe- spectrum and as a family member, things that, um, that are important to, to keep in mind and, and raising a child with autism and, um, you know, lo- lots of, lots of different things about, um, about that, uh, that particular topic. And she talked a lot about bottom up thinking versus top down thinking. Hmm. Uh, and so she gave, she gave really like extremely salient examples. And she said, look, I, my mind works visually. And, and when we have to do things that are abstract, when someone asks me a question about algebra, which is an abstract concept, I can't figure that out. I need finite math. I need geometry. I need something that I can grab onto that I can see it in my mind and move it around and play with it and look at it from, from different angles. And so she descri- described that very specific example of bottom up, like give me four things that are a problem and I'm going to use those four things to, to create solutions as opposed to top down thinking of, uh, value systems and, uh, uh, corporate philosophy and mission statements. And, and she gave in a, a food safety talk example, which was, um, she went to, well, she didn't name the company, but said, I, I gave uh, a, a talk at a major food company who I've done work for in the past, um, in their processing plants, but we talked about other things and they talked about food safety culture. And she said, that is top down thinking Mm -hmm. that is, and, and, and she's like, that's not going to work for everybody because you've got people that work on those lines that work in the organization where you're talking about thousands of individuals, they're bottom up thinkers. And so we have to come, we have to figure out how to make all of it work together. And it was it was cool because she kind of she you know called out um, the, you know this this concept that you and I have talked about and written about um, around culture and it, and it made me think about some of the stuff that we do for food handlers and managers where it's really specific salient examples that we want we we, we want I guess the best of both worlds there where there's an abstract feeling of 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 we do food safety because it's the right thing to do but we also need you to do these specific things because this is what we mean by food safety. Um, and, and so it was, it was really, it was really, it was interesting. It's not always, you know, I didn't go to that, um, to the talk thinking we would talk anything about food safety at all, uh, or it would make me think about food safety. Yeah, no. And, and I, I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective on, um, on algebra because we do obviously for the work that we do, we do a lot of math, but I sometimes struggle when things get too abstract. And I really, one of the, 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 you know, fantastic things for me has been simulation modeling and, and spreadsheets because I can sit there and I can say, well, okay, yes, I understand theoretically what we're supposed to be doing, but, I, but to make sure that I'm doing it right, I really need to work that with actual numbers and actual examples and then make sure that that makes sense to me. So I, I very much can appreciate that. And I, I think as well, I am much better at bottom up thinking than top down thinking. Anytime somebody starts talking about, you know, vision statements and, and all that stuff, I kind of, I kind of tune out and we've talked before too on, on the podcast about, um, uh, David Allen and getting things done, uh, which is a which is a, nominally a, a system for being more productive. And, and the thing that is 
to me is revolutionary about getting things done is it really starts with a bottom-up thinking. In other words, what is right in front of me right now? And what's right in front of me right now is this stack of papers. Well, I need to find a system for dealing with that papers. Yes, I want to prioritize my life and I want to achieve my, you know, my, my vision, you know, uh, my goals and, and all of that. But, it, but if I'm distracted by this pile of paper in front of me until I figure out a system for dealing with that, I'm not going to rise to that higher level thinking. So I, I very much uh, can appreciate that. Right, right. And it, w- one of the things that um, the temple kept coming back to when, so she, she did a Q and a after, after her talk. And um, so there are parents of individuals who are on the autism uh, spectrum and, and they're just sort of asking about like, could you give me some advice for my child who um, when they're in class, they, they get distracted and, you know, the school system isn't really supportive of this. And how should I deal with the school system? And Temple's like, whoa, stop. You need to give me way more information and be really specific. When you say distracted in class, what do you mean? Are they distracted by movement? Are they distracted by, um, you know, sounds? Are they distracted by um, too many people around? Like, what is it? Give me, like, don't don't just tell me distracted. And she was like, it was, it, it was really, she was very pointed with her response. But, and then did a fantastic job after answering this question by saying, the reason why I'm asking those things is because those are bottom up questions. Don't, don't give me some like, be, don't be a generalist when you're asking for a question, you're asking me for a solution to a question. Give me the specifics. Um, and, and so she, you know, she related that back to, um, uh, animal handling and animal, um, uh, welfare and movement in, in slaughterhouses and, and saying, you, you know, the, the general issue is, um, sort of looking at, uh, how do we make this better? And she's like, I spend time in these systems trying to figure out exactly what it is by what, what's going wrong that makes it not better in the, in the global sense. And it's, you know, hanging chains and holes and movement and slippery surfaces. Those are bottom up things. These are real, real things. Um, so it was really, it, it was like really a, a, uh, uh, an excellent talk. I'd not, I'd not heard her, her speak before. Um, I was, uh, you, you, we had talked a few weeks ago about you had just, uh, watched the HBO movie, uh, about, you know, her, her movie, uh, you know, about her. Um, we, uh, the, our family watched it on, um, Sunday this week and, and all four of us went to see her speak. So, uh, it was a really great experience and you get a sense like, uh, you're in a room with a rock star and she didn't, didn't really care. Um, that, that she's uh, that that she's famous. She's just here to talk and tell your tell tell everyone her story and what she's thinking about things. Yeah, and I I, I appreciate people that have a, uh, uh, a a non-traditional perspective, and and I appreciate it when they when they can say what they believe with such clarity and and such uh, such passion. So. Great, great stuff. So, and if you have not watched uh, Temple Grandin, the film, uh, highly recommended. And I think the, the book that you're talking about is The Autistic Brain Thinking Across the Spectrum. Is that right? I believe so. Okay. So we will link to uh, both of those things uh, as well as uh, uh, getting things done, which again, if you've not, it's been a while since we've talked about uh, OmniFocus or productivity or, or Merlin Mann, but, uh, but, but, you know, that's a recurring theme on this show about food safety as well. And so <laughs> if you are struggling with having too much to do and you want a bottom up approach, um, uh, you should check out GTD. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so, uh, other, other things that I wanted to talk to you about that were non food safety related, um, just, uh, continuing in the world of, um, 
uh, a hockey safety talk. Uh, mm-hmm. My hockey team is playing in the playoffs, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and they lost last night. And I'm I'm feeling down today, Don. It's only game one out of a seven game series, but I'll tell you, I'm uh, I was not uh, not super happy with uh, with with my team's uh, performance last night. Um, and the the other thing I wanted to sort of briefly talk about is something that I posted on Barf Blog um, last weekend. Uh, really like, um, sort of an emotional, uh, situation with a, 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 a tragedy that happened with a, mm-hmm. a junior hockey team in, in Saskatchewan where their, uh, bus are traveling to a playoff hockey game. These are 16 to 20 year old kids, um, was in a collision with a semi truck and, um, you know, 16 deaths, uh, you know, linked to this, um, uh, terrible, terrible accident out of the. I think it was 28 people that were on the bus and it's, um, I, I don't know. So I don't, I don't have a good perspective, um, of how this like stuff like this is talked about or received outside of the hockey community. Cause it's, uh, even in my, all of my social media streams, um, they're biased, you know, strongly towards that, that community, you know, our, our closest friends socially are, are all, um, you know, families that, that we spend time with, uh, during the hockey season. And, and so this, um, yesterday, uh, it, it sort of started, um, uh, on Monday, but, uh, people were placing hockey sticks outside of their, their front door. Um, kind of like, you know, putting a, a blue light up to, to support, um, first responders and, and police officers. Um, you know, this was the idea of like, we're, we're all in the community sort of thinking about this, this terrible tragedy. Um, and so my, my Facebook feed, my Twitter feed were just, you know, full, full of these, of these pictures. Uh, and then the, the second piece is yesterday, um, there was this social media movement of where, wear a hockey Jersey, uh, for the day. And so both my kids wore hockey jerseys, uh, to school. And this is, this is where it's like, I, I feel like, you know, and when you're in the world, everybody, about, everyone all, all is knows about this. Like you're kind of all, um, it, it just don't have the same perspective when you're looking at it from the outside. So, um, Sam, my, my younger son goes to a school that requires, um, uh, they, they're supposed to wear uniforms, so they do wear uniforms. So he got around this by wearing his hockey jersey underneath his uniform, and his. Uh, I think I've mentioned that he goes to a, a school that he's in a French immersion or a sorry Spanish immersion um, program. So when I picked him up from school yesterday, I asked him, you know, did your teacher say anything about your jersey, and and did you tell her why you were wearing it? And he said, well, my teacher told me to take it off. Um, because it was against the, um, the rules when it comes to, to uniforms, but she said it in Spanish and I just pretended to not understand her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I uh, guess, I guess that's good. Uh, I guess so. Um, uh, and, but he, you know, he said that there weren't anybody else, there no one else in his school had worn any, uh, wore anything. And then Jack, um, goes to a, a, you know, a different school that doesn't require, um, uniforms and, and he wears, uh, uh, a team Canada Jersey. And he said, he was like, yeah, there's, I, I don't think my school was doing it. Cause there was no one at my school that was wearing, um, wearing these jerseys. So anyway, the question I had for you was, did you, did you hear about either of these two, I don't know, social, uh, not movements, but like marking this, uh, this event. 
Did you see anybody wear a hockey jersey yesterday? Uh, if I did, I did not notice it. Obviously, I was aware of the the Humboldt Broncos uh, tragedy, and I did see your posts, and 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 actually, I think I saw something that was didn't even come from you or from Doug, and and of course, you guys were were onto it immediately. Um, but but no, I have not. I had not heard about either of these uh, either of these two things: the hockey stick thing or the jersey thing. Oh, see, that's uh, that's why I asked. That's why I have friends outside of the hockey world like you, because um, I was. Yeah, it, it's it's one of these things where, um, yeah, you, you just assume that it's a whole global thing. Uh, but, the you know, the community is very, very close. But but it's still we're still a small, you know, we're a small community. So, um, yeah, so that's sorry to be such a downer. It's been that that whole tragedy is kind of weighed on, on my mind a lot. I was um, I, I, I was. Uh, Last weekend, I actually happened to be um, traveling to go watch um, hockey. I went to Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul, to to watch the NCAA Frozen Four with um, a, one friend who I play hockey with here, and two of his friends from one from Philadelphia and one from Dallas, and they've been doing you know traveling and, and going on this trip. Um, I think for the last six or seven years, and um, that the accident we we were there for games on thursday and saturday and the accident happened friday and so we were like in a very hockey state of mind um and the city was full of um tributes to the you know the humble broncos and um so anyway it's just been one of the you know one of those things where um it, it has been uh some, something that i've been thinking about a lot so and that's why we have a podcast so i can talk about those things absolutely so what else? What else is going on with you? Well, so speaking of speaking of podcasts, um, I don't know if you've listened to uh, this week's uh, Do by Friday, but uh, I got a bunch of shouts out because uh, they were talking about microbiology stuff. And uh, so anyway, uh, we've been going back and forth. I've just been um, I got I got a couple of uh, messages from uh, from Max uh, in my Twitter about uh, maybe they want to do a microbiology themed challenge. So that's uh, that's Whoa. so anyway. If you have not if you have not listened to this week. Uh, do by Friday. Uh, they do. T- they're all a little bit uh, germ. I don't want to say germ phobic, but anyway, they they th- they think and they talk about germs occasionally. And um, you know, my my name typically comes up just because you know I know I've known Merlin for a while, and now they they know me. And I think Max is a little bit. Uh, yeah, Max is a little bit worried about. I'm oh, overly worried about germs. I would say, but uh, I don't think he listens. I don't think he'll ever hear this. But uh, anyway, so I got to work out. Uh, maybe do some microbiology related challenge uh, for those guys. So anyway, oh, great, awesome. great great podcast. If you have not. Checked it out. Uh, it may not be for you, but uh, if it is for you, you, you'll love it. So, I have not listened to this week's episode. So, what was the microbiology context that they were talking about? Well, it was just uh, generally about. Well, so they had just uh, Max and Alex had just come back from C two E two, which is uh, some sort of uh, like a comic-con slash entertainment thing in chicago and they just talked about like how disgusting conventions are and then <laughs> being around people and germs and max i guess did a bunch of shaking of people's hands and he was talking about like what are his best uh avoiding the germs you know uh, uh practices and then actually alex started they started talking about soap which really uh piqued my interest because uh, i sent alex a copy of the um our bulk soap uh, manuscript and so um you know uh uh, refillable, open refillable soap containers uh, can be contaminated with bacteria. We will link to um, my JFP article on that subject. Um, yeah, so those were the kind of things they were talking about. Oh, that's cool. Awesome. Well, and 
they, I think they, you did a, uh, an after show with them or something, right? I, they I, you yeah, it was, it was yeah. a, it was a challenge related to, uh, take something, uh, and, and sous vide it. Um, uh, and they were going to, but, but not a food item. Uh, they were going to sous vide their shoes in an attempt to, uh, avoid, uh, or to reduce contamination. Um, and, uh, I emailed Merlin to say, Hey, um, that's not going to work because of, uh, water activity and uh, latent heat of vaporization and all that. And then uh, they had me on. Um, it ended up, we had a little miscommunication about the time, but, uh, and I didn't have my, my full podcasting gear, but I, I did, I did okay. We talked about sponges and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. So this week's episode uh, is called Farmville for War. Uh, the challenge uh, was something to do with plants, but uh, anyway, so uh, we're, uh, you know, check that, check that out if you haven't already. Uh, all right. Awesome. I, so, Speaking of the uh, sous vide, um, your shoes to get rid of the smell, something like lit up on Twitter yesterday. Uh-huh. I don't know if you saw this, but someone had tweeted. I don't follow this person, but someone who has a lot of followers follows them. And they uh, said that someone was microwaving socks in their office. Oh, to- that's <laughs> just disgusting and on so is. many levels. It is. But here's the here's the question that I want to pose to you. <laughs> so, so, no, so the answer is no. No, no, no. Let's 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 suspend all. Um, and and there's no. I should say this in a way where it's like I'm not coming from a, like I'm not asking for a friend. There's no like don't <laughs> don't pretend. Don't put me into this at all. Uh-huh. Um, but if from a purely microbiological uh, standpoint um, and a food safety standpoint, someone says, "Hey, so someone in my office microwave their socks, and now I need to decontaminate the microwave. How should I do it?" Um, uh-huh. What? How would you answer that question? <laughs> well, um, that's a good question. Uh, I would say, uh, obviously, well, so there's a couple of questions. So number one, um, obviously, the place where the socks were sitting is probably the most contaminated. But then I don't know. I guess you could have had stuff sprayed around the microwave. Um, I would say clean the microwave in whatever way that the microwave manufacturer recommends. And I believe that is uh, using a mild soap. Um, we actually had this uh, occasion come up because uh, my, my wife was recently cleaning our home microwave. And she was being a little bit aggressive and had some, 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 something was, was scrubbing. And she ended up actually um, uh, uh, scrubbing the what do they call it? It's the diffuser, uh, which so the in a microwave oven there's the thing that generates the microwaves, but you want those to be spread out in the whole oven. And so there's something called a diffuser, which is basically just a fancy piece of cardboard. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a laminated cardboard and, and that got damaged. And so we ended up uh, having to replace it. Um, uh, but fortunately there's a, a good place you can go. If you know the exact model of your microwave, you can, you can get a replacement one. Um, and, uh, so in doing that, I was researching how to clean a microwave and basically it comes down to, you have to use just don't, don't, don't be too aggressive. So use a mild, uh, a mild, uh, detergent, I believe is the recommendation, but you should be able to find the specific recommendation from your microwave manufacturer. Um, and then I would say the other issue is probably just smell, right? So it's not right. microbiological, uh, germs, but actually just smell. And so in that case, um, probably just leave some baking soda in there. Um, I wouldn't recommend microwaving the baking soda because it's dry and it's 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 potentially I guess I don't know if it's flammable, but I certainly wouldn't recommend it. But but you know, and then uh, if they have I don't know if they sell do they sell things in the store that are like odor 
uh, you know, put like make to make your microwave smell nice because honestly, most of it's just going to be aesthetic. Um, right, right. So, and then you know, prop the microwave open. Uh, maybe get some airflow through there. But the actual. I mean, it's disgusting. It's like finding hair and food, hair and cooked food. It's disgusting. It's probably not that unsanitary. I mean, if you have a, if you have a, if if you have a tray, a rotating tray, like our our home microwave has a rotating tray. Take the tray out, and you can put that in the dishwasher, or you can wash that with you know hot soapy water and scrub it. Um, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not. I mean, it's it's not. It's probably not that contaminated. So those are those are my tips. I like bang on what I was thinking about. And I didn't engage in this Twitter conversation because I was reading most of this at stoplights <laughs> um, as I was uh, Uber lifting yesterday. Uh, and um, but I, I thought, you know, pro- like from a risk standpoint, I think it's like super, super low and it's way crazy disgusting. And I did find um, the the original uh, tweet here that says, oh, now I've lost it. Basically, um I'm not a monster who's doing this, uh, but, and how to, how to handle this, this whole thing. Um, but, but I thought, you know, probably just running the microwave subsequent times is going to take care of any risk that might've been, um, like deposed, deposited there. The original, absolutely. The original tweet is, so if someone in the office dried their socks in the communal microwave, how does that person get their foot germs out of the microwave? (laughs) Is a Lysol wipe. Okay. Not a lot of cleaning options in the office. Um, this was not PS. This is not me. I promise. I'm not a monster. Right. (laughs) And then another response, my favorite response to this is here to say this has happened in my office, except the socks caught on fire, which would have been a whole other situation. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, low, low risk, super, super gross. Um, uh, I'm glad that hygiene and cleaning out a microwave, uh, made the, uh, you know, the, my Twitter moments yesterday for a short amount of time. Cause I thought it was, uh, quite funny reading all the, the comments to this, uh, to this thread. So, absolutely. Um, but yeah, uh, so don't, please don't put your socks in the microwave cause it's just gross. And it's not really going to do anything, right? What you should do with your socks is you should wash them in a washing machine using hot water. That is how you, and if you want, you can add some bleach. Thank you. You could add some bleach. That's how you wash socks. That's how you clean socks. You don't use a microwave. Yeah. Right. If you don't have a, you don't have a washing machine, you know, people don't have washing machines, uh, done, maybe go to a laundromat. Uh, wash them in, wash them in a sink. I mean, a sink, you know, with a little bit of dish soap. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm micro even, I, look, no one, Don, no one likes putting on warm socks more than I do. I, nobody, but I'm not, uh, I've never thought about sticking them in the microwave. It's never oh. been, uh, never been an option. <laughs> Ex- <laughs> so. Exactly. Oh, oh, so good, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, we, we have a lot of feedback. We, do. Um, we we have had so, a, a lot a lot of feedback lately, uh, which is great. Uh, but I want to maybe apologize in advance to listeners because we may actually have to not do because we could. It seems like the right. show is turning into all feedback. I wonder if we need a second show. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need a feedback show, and then we need a maybe a non feedback show. And don't I, I think we talked a little bit about this in the last episode or two episodes ago. Don't stop sending us feedback. That's not what we're saying. We, I like we like this feedback. We just may not get to every uh, to all of it. Um, and maybe what we should do uh, is is just like have a feedback show uh, every uh, you know every four or five shows uh, where we try and catch up on all this stuff. Like a like a mailbag mailbag show. That's what they used to do on uh, on Letterman, right? 
I think so. Um, so, uh, my first one is, uh, this is, uh, I, I, one of my, one of my favorite ones. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, this is, uh, from Cheryl details freely, uh, name, uh, is from, uh, Wendy Alpine. Uh, our email address is, uh, Wendy at Alpine PR.com message. <laughs> <laughs> message. Hi. Uh, I would like to suggest as a guest, Mark Duffy, CEO of Universal Pure, a third-party manufacturer of HPP, high-pressure processing, a food processing technique that uses water and high pressure to kill pathogens while keeping food quality intact. Over the last few years, companies are turning to HPP, HPP, uh, not HP sauce, uh, HPP to respond to consumer demand for fresh foods and beverages while ensuring food safety. There's even a cold pressure council seal that will be going on to food to designate the product has been HPP'd. Mark could discuss how this process works and how companies are using it to meet consumer demand, thereby creating new products and even saving money as HPP allows extended shelf life. Thanks, Wendy Alpine. Wow. Well, uh, I uh, thanks thanks Wendy. Um, but we we probably won't have Mark on um, uh, because honestly we know how HPP works. Um, and uh, yeah, so so thanks. Um, but uh, but no thanks. <laughs> I'm looking. I, so I got my eyes open for the cold pressure council seal though. Well, I don't I don't want to link to the company because I don't want to give them any publicity. But I would right. link to the cold pressure council seal. That that might be cool. I don't even. Yeah, I, I I'm not sure what it is. It's coming out soon. That's all I know. Okay. Well, well, let's 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 see if let's see let's see what the cold pressure council uh, is uh, like on the web. Yeah, it's uh, the, the cold pressure council has a website. It's slow. It loads very slowly. There we go. <laughs> uh, register for the annual cold pressure council conference. Um, and oh, there it is. High pressure certified. What does that tell you? It's been <laughs> it's been certified. Been certified high pressure. All right. Um. Like, uh, do you think that uh, high pressure certified? Oh, oh wait. Oh, so that- this is good. Um, so if you if you click the view the guidelines for high pressure certified, it says document a document unavailable. <laughs> this document is no longer available. For more information, contact Jessica. We're this is what we're going to link to. Okay, so yeah. document unavailable. Thanks, guys. Uh, mission statement. So here's some top down. Oh wait, uh, and contact Jessica's name is bolded, but but there's no link. So oh, contact we'll just- Jessica. It's just Jessica. So. I think they mean just to like at at tweet Je- at Jessica. Okay, <laughs> on it. I mean, we're on it. Oh, cold pressure council. I uh, and we're you know we we can be we can be dicks sometimes um, when we get emails like this, uh, but uh, high pressure processing is kind of useful. <laughs> so don't right. don't take anything. Yeah, like that's, yeah, it it's could not, it could be useful. Um, it's yeah. good. It's good that they have a, because I mean here's the thing. There's a lot of people out there, I'm sure, that uh, that are going to be using high pressure that have not done the due diligence and have not done the science. And so for sure, we, we think it's a useful technology, I think. Um, but we also think that people uh, should like know, like have investigated it, right? It's like it's like it's like sous vide your shoes, right? Like no one's going to recommend that because because the science says it won't work. So uh, HPP, but without knowing, you know, without doing challenge studies or without the science base, it's 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 not good. So. So good for them for having a council and for I guess trying to put some you know system systematize this a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we'll move in. 
Moving on. Hey, to, so oh yeah. Oh, I, I, so I want to talk about uh, this New Jersey Panera is being eyed as a possible source of E. coli. Okay, so this is an article uh, that was sent to me uh, by Deep Fed. And uh, and Deep Fed said, I don't know where this is in New Jersey, but I thought you should know about it. And uh, so actually, uh, th- so this is a uh, Panera restaurant in, um, where is it? Phillipsburg, uh, Warren County, uh, New Jersey, uh, which I have eaten at. So this is not our local, any of our local oh. Paneras. This is a Panera that's uh, kind of close to Kristen's parents. And we do, we have eaten at this para- Panera multiple times because it is on the way to Ithaca. So when we go up to to visit my family in upstate New York, we do um, eat at this Panera. But then I think more interestingly is there is another message that came out um, on the the FDA website, um, which basically says FDA investigating multiple outbreaks of E. coli 157H7 infections. That particular... uh, uh, that particular webpage does not mention Panera, but I'm pretty Correct. sure it's the same outbreak. It sure looks I, like it. I think you're right. Um, investigation includes uh, 0157 infections recently reported to New Jersey Department of Health. Um, yep. And uh, yeah, so I, I mean, here, here's the uh, as always, like going going back to um, if you go early, you're and you're wrong, you suck. And if you go late and you're right, then you suck. Uh, when it comes to going public with, I don't think that's the exact quote, but I, I know the quote you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a Paul Mead co- quote, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I think I don't think he used the word suck, but yes, we yeah, got yeah. we got the gist of it. Yeah, well, and and we'll, we can link to the um, going public uh, paper that Doug and I published last year in the um, Journal of Environmental Health, uh, really on that and, and sort of jumping off uh, that that quote. Um, you know, here's here's a situation where um, you've got a New Jersey, um, you know, New Jersey State Department of Health who says we think that there's something going on here. It leaks out. Sort of, I think, in an interview that Panera is one of the places that they're looking at, um, but uh, we don't, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on. Um, other than, um, and I'll, I'm going to read from uh, the um, New Jersey uh, State Department of Health website. Um, there are four cases in Hunterdon, uh, one in Monmouth. One in Sussex and one in Somerset. Well, Mon- Monmouth is a county where I live, so you know it's, it's not you, Clinton. That's not me. It's not you, but hey, but could have been me. Could have been me. Yeah, there are people that you know in Monmouth County that have eaten in this uh, Panera. Uh, but I mean, now looking at the link uh, to to CDC's page, um, this is it, you know it's a it's a multi state uh, outbreak of uh 0157 17 cases in seven different states maybe it's a it's a panera supplier maybe it's not maybe it's yep. a a national supply like i mean this is the thing is we just don't know but i wanna i'm i'm glad we're talking about this because i want uh, like this is exactly what i think you and i have talked about and doug and i published about is go public with this information and tell people we don't know and here's what we're doing to investigate and that's what cdc's got going on um, they do share, um, I'll read from this, uh, from this report as of April 9th, 
Um, so four days ago, 17 people infected with the strain have been reported from seven states. A list of the states and number of cases can be found in this case count map. Illnesses started on dates ranging from March 22nd to March 31st. Ill people range in age from 12 to 84 with a median age of 41. Among ill people, 65% are, are female. Um, six out of these 17 uh, have led to hospitalizations. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, the, all six of those hospitalizations are from the state of New Jersey. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, but here we go. It says this investigation is ongoing. We don't know if it's a specific food item or grocery store or restaurant chain. That is, I mean, truthfully, Don, this is exactly what I want to see. Um, we, we know that there's an outbreak. We're, we're doing what we can in an, uh, uh, to investigate this outbreak. And this is good. This is good communication. And we don't have to wait for a solved, a solved case. Yeah. And I have to say, <clears throat> never read the comments, but sometimes reading the comments can be instructive. Um, so the first, the newest comment, uh, which was five days ago on the NJ.com uh, article says, Go to the source. It's the workers they hire. Why is no one speaking of this? And so to uh, Dad Petcong, who posted that, you're wrong. It's not the workers because it wouldn't be a multi-state outbreak if it was the workers at one particular restaurant. Um, uh, the other thing I would say is that somebody uh, who's actually writes rather clearly uh, called New Jersey Professor, who is not me, okay? Uh, New Jersey <laughs> Professor actually makes some valid comments. Um, uh, my comments, uh, if you scroll down, I posted uh, via Twitter, and so the comments from uh, Bug Counter are from me. Um, uh, and then so here, uh, here's a comment I replied to. If you stated the facts, it would cover the area the E. coli was being found in, wait until a determination is made, all caps, would be the righteous thing to do before causing problems for a business. And my response is, well, that's not the way public health works. Making an announcement is the responsible thing to do. And so, so again, but it's, I think it's very, I, you know, again, never read the comments unless you decide to read the comments. Um, but, but I think it's very useful because reading the comments does give you a perspective on what normal people think, or at least normal people that go on NJ.com and feel compelled to post comments, right? So, right, right. Absolutely. And it does. Uh, so, um, uh, this will segue into something that I was doing before you and I got on the phone or on the phone, on the, on the Skype here on the Skype horn today. Um, I was, uh, starting to think about a new course, um, that we're developing, um, here around, uh, training local health departments on, um, communication and outbreak investigation, not like an epidemiological investigation course, but how do you handle, you know, four illnesses in your county that look like they're all, all, all together? Um, how do you handle that, that publicly facing conversation? Um, what do you, wh what are the things that you look for as resources and how do you make decisions on it? And, and this, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about is we're brainstorming the curricula for, um, this course is go to the comments. If you want to get a sense of what the a small section of your vocal public is is thinking about it, and you want to use that information to head off any questions that you may get by saying, "Hey, we know that this conversation is going on. Let's answer this in our first, um, you know, our public statements." Uh, it is a it, it is a great resource that's free that gives you a sense of what people are already talking about. So I, you know, I ab absolutely, absolutely agree. And, and thinking how if I was in um, in the public health realm, just using those comments to say, well, 
no, I mean, we, we don't think it's uh, a food handler because of this multi-state uh, nature of it. And, and the reason being, you know, getting right down to the, to the specifics of, cause you know, you're going to have different employees in every spot and this is all linked to one, one specific source. Um, but, but being able to, to use those comments and put that directly into your proactive messaging, um, is, is cool. So yeah, we're, We'll we'll be uh, probably over the next year, sort of developing this, and and hope to roll it out later um, in two thousand and eighteen. Very very cool. So um, yeah, you know, I, I, while we're talking about um, uh, ill workers, I do want to. Um, this wasn't podcast feedback, but it was some information that came to me uh, via a colleague uh, in in Facebook, and I won't. And again, it was not for the podcast and not for attribution, but I will. I, but I did clear it with him that we could talk about it because I think it's relevant, and it kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And I would be curious as to um, your perspective on this. So um, it says, oh, and then and before that, we leave the podcast. Let's let's. I just want to talk to you about um, uh, uh, menu labels, food safety label, uh, food safety warnings on menus uh, for something that's that's coming up uh, on on my on my radar. So so put a pin in that. But let's let's circle back to sick employees. So. Um, uh, the message says, hi, Don, how goes it? As I continue to see, teach SurfSafe and SafeMark courses around New Jersey, I find that many of the state's largest supermarket chains incentivize employees to come to work sick. I actually had a room full of butchers laugh at me when I suggested that, quote, if you are sick, you should stay home. The companies claim that it's the contracts that the unions have negotiated, uh, end quote. Uh, and, the, and again, the, the, those contracts are no sick days. It makes me wonder what if these policies have on the spread of illness. I wonder if anyone, state or local health departments, has ever called them out on these no sick leave policies, given the number of customers they deal with on a daily basis. Um, do you, uh, and, and he, he identifies himself as uh, curious in Piscataway. So I, I, he's, that's, that, that, that triangulates it, but hopefully not too close. So can you... Can you give me your perspective on this? What, what do you, what, have you heard of this, that, that, there are, that, the, that this is something we can blame on the unions because of their negotiations? Um, and have you ever heard of this? No. This is, I mean, this is the first thing that, that I've heard of it. Um, I'm, I guess I'm like kind of uh, – I, maybe I just don't know enough about union negotiations um, to see where this, where this really like fits in in that, in that decision-making and – and give and take of the of the negotiation um, side of things. Um, I, I think I think often you know my my perspective just to like make this a little more adjacent to to other things that I've uh, I've seen um, post uh, listeria outbreak uh, linked to uh, Maple Leaf Foods in Canada um, union uh, unions of um, uh, inspectors were really highlighted as a, like a, a can, I don't know if contributing factors is probably too strong, but a, a factor in that, um, the, you, the union sort of pointed to, we need more inspection and inspection that, uh, that's happening. And the reason why, um, you know, certain oversight from a regulatory uh, standpoint doesn't doesn't happen. It's because we we've had because of past negotiations have not protected those those jobs. But I think that I mean that's a little different from from this case. But no, I mean this is that's a new one 
a new one to me. Had you had you heard about anything like this? I, I had not. Um, and uh, just as a, I mean, it's not it's not directly relevant. I thought it was I thought it was epidemiology. I was gonna, I'm going to link to a, a webpage on epi.org, uh, but epi is not epidemiology. It's the Economic Policy Institute, and it's just a. A briefing paper on the need for paid sick days. Uh, the the tagline is "Lack of a federal policy further erodes family economic security." So I think this is this is a paid sick leave is probably good for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, one of which is food safety. So, right, yeah, exactly. And and I mean we've we've kind of talked about the practical sense of of paid sick leave. Actually, I don't think I, I talked about this in, in the last podcast, but um, a few weeks ago, I, I gave a guest lecture in a food ethics class, a graduate class that we have here at NC State that Sophie Cathario um, teaches. And um, maybe 15 or so minutes of that that lecture, and I'd say lecture with Richard Fingers, um, was a discussion about paid sick leave and, and, and sort of offering it and then the belief that it would be abused and the and the trade-off between um you know people people abusing it and not and and not offering it and and how do you reconcile that that conversation it's not a union thing um but you know that just the the ethics uh of it from a um protecting your customers as well as your your employees and and I've mentioned a, f- a few times before that I have a friend who owns a, a fast food, um, restaurant as a franchisee owner. And he, um, he and I talk all the time about, about food safety stuff. Um, and one of the things that in, you know, a, a conversation not too long ago said, um, we offer, um, no questions asked, um, you know, paid, paid sick leave as well as requiring people, um, that if they do have, even without a confirmed, um, you know, sick note from a, from a doctor, if they self-report to a manager that they had any vomit or, or diarrhea, they're not allowed to work, um, you know, back for another 48 hours. And if they had, after their symptoms are, have subsided, and if they had a shift, um, scheduled within those 48 hours, we pay them for it. And, and he said, you know, this is, uh, we just know that we, we don't even worry about people abusing it. Uh, we know that that it will be, but it's not worth the conversation because if it if it prevents an illness, then the it, it, you know, we we look at it as a um, we can't look at the specific cost of that one person staying out. It's the cost of the entire program that is preventing those illnesses. If that makes, makes right, sense. right, like how many how many. Uh, foodborne illnesses would you have to prevent before that that policy becomes cost effective? Not very many, right? Right. Yeah, so, it, so you, exactly. you're willing to take uh, the false positives or the false, yeah, false positives. I guess that would be you're willing to take people abusing the system because you know that the net benefit on public health is 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 you're still again just simply on an economic argument you're still ahead of the game, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that it's. Um, the, the other thing that he said is that it makes the, like, it allows them to be more selective with their employees, that they are able to attract a, a, a higher quality of, uh, of fast food worker because they, they pay, they provide that benefit. And so they've got a larger pool of people that are, that are coming to them and they, you know, they they can pick the best of the best, right? Like they, they're, they're, they're not really, I mean, they're competing for workers with others, but that puts them into a spot where they can turn people away. 
um, because they've always got someone there for those benefits. Right, right, and and yeah, and it, you're right. It attracts a higher uh, caliber uh, employee, and that's uh, and that that re- probably re- because they have this benefit that reduces turnover. Um, yeah, it just it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. So no, that's a that's a new one. Uh, that was a new one to me. Um. So blockchain, Don. <laughs> blockchain, Ben. Uh, okay, so I, I as I was um, in in Minneapolis this weekend, uh, had an off uh, morning before watching hockey. Um, our, uh, we, we were in an Airbnb, and I was sitting around just reading food safety stuff as as you do. Um, and uh, Susan Von Gruders, who uh, people who are listeners might might know, she's uh, been involved in the in the food safety world for for quite some time. She uh, was had had worked for a couple of consumer advocate uh, organizations, and I think right now she's at Ohio State University and is doing some. Um, some instructional work. Uh, anyway, we're friends on Facebook and she posted maybe the best takedown of blockchain that I've, I've read. And you and I, have, we've talked blockchain, um, personally, uh, in the past and blockchain to me is one of the things that it's just this concept of, um, you know, overall the concept of being able to trace, um, uh, food from production all the way through to consumption, uh, on the surface, and l- let's you know put this into Temple Grandin terms, a great top-down idea, right? Sounds great philosophically, generalized, awesome. Um, but there was um, a- an article that was posted on um, Medium that's entitled "Blockchain is not only crappy technology, but is a bad vision for the future." Uh, and it was, you know, I think one of the one of the better um, things that I had seen. Um, on, on on sort of the 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 limitations, and I'm going to read you just a couple of um, uh, uh, quotes here. Um, one that that you highlighted as we text back and forth on, um, you know, the companies that are involved have gone long on press but short on actual rollout. Um, but but this this one passage uh, reminds me why I'm skeptical of, of the process. Quote, blockchain systems do not magically make the data in them accurate or the people entering the data trustworthy. They merely enable you to audit whether it has been tampered with. A person who has sprayed pesticides on a mango can still enter on a blockchain system that the mangoes were organic. It all comes down to people, Don, yep, right? Exactly. And, and the preserving the data – um, is, 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 is a, is a good, is a good concept, but how do we ensure the right data goes in there and, and, and that it, and that the people that are entering the data are actually doing the practices is, is the other, is the other piece. So, so we'll link to this, um, to this blockchain, um, article, but I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was a really great, um, you know, highlighting all the stuff that, that I've been thinking about, you know, someone else goes ahead and, and writes it in a really articulate way. Yeah, and and uh, you know one of the the this is not food safety related, but one of the p- the points that's made towards the end of the article is that even 
and I'll read from the article here, even the most diehard crypto enthusiasts prefer in practice to rely on trust rather than their own crypto medieval systems. 93% of Bitcoins are mined by managed consortiums, yet none of the consortiums use smart contracts to manage payouts. Instead, they promise things like a long history of stable and accurate payouts. So, you know, it's again, Silk Road is the same way. Um, it's, it's, it's really a, all about uh, a trusted middleman. It's not about uh, tamper-proof blockchain. So, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, before we leave this, I, I want to uh, read something else. You know, it says decentralized tamper-proof repository sounds like a great way to audit where your mango comes from, how fresh it is, and whether it's been sprayed with pesticides. But actually, laws on food labeling, nonprofit or government inspectors, and independent, trusted free press, empowered workers who trust whistleblower protections, credible grocery stores, your local nonprofit farmers markets, and so on, do a way better job. Um, and and I mean, there there are limitations to all of those things that that he lists out. Um, but the system that we have right now is I and you know uh, I've, we've been critical and skeptical of this. I don't think that it that blockchain makes food any safer. Uh, I think that it preserves um, how much information travels with the with the food, but it doesn't um, it, unless it, maybe I just don't I don't believe that the incentive. Um, of someone sees the data and then it travels with it is enough to change the practices. If someone's going to spray something with, with pesticide, um, and say it's organic, they're going to do so with or without blockchain. Right. And this, this reminds me of one of my, my favorite, uh, quotes, uh, which I will watch, I will now read and we will link to as well. And this is, uh, uh, described as stamps statistical probability. The government is extremely fond of amassing great quantities of statistics. These are raised to the nth degree. The cube roots are extracted and the results are arranged into elaborate and impressive displays. What must be kept in mind, however, is that in every case, the figures are first put down by a village watchman and he puts down anything he damn well pleases. And that's been attributed to Sir Josiah Stamp, uh, 1840 to 1941, who is the HM collector of inland revenue um, and uh, from rules collected by Donald Rumsfeld. So, um, yeah, so so that's the, the whole thing, right? It's It comes back to that point. You have to trust the person that's putting the data in in the first place. And if you do that, then, yeah, blockchain is great. But if you don't trust the person, blockchain is not going to help you. Yeah, and I, and Don, I don't trust the person. <laughs> I don't always. I need to know yeah. who they are. Right, right. And, and I guess that, like, the, the I, I, I shouldn't say that 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 it's always the the case, but um, I my my entire um, you know risk management philosophy is is based on there there's some um, you know maybe it's a normal distribution of uh, trustworthiness um, and and we've got to make sure that we set it, we create our standards to catch the people that are least trustworthy. Um, in, in, in not, you know, not doing the things that they're supposed to do to keep the, that food safe. But, but if I, I would feel very, um, uncomfortable removing those, you know, all those other things that they, that they list about, uh, regulatory regimes and, um, you know, internal and external checks and, and supplier requirements and, um, and, and you know, and supporting those, those, uh, those employees to, to be whistleblowers, all that stuff. If we, you know, blockchain doesn't replace any of that. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, hey, so I want to talk to you about something else briefly, because there's not a whole lot to talk about. 
Um, and that is that uh, Don Canadians are confused about food recalls. Did you know this? I'm a Canadian. I, I think right. most people are confused about food recalls, honestly, Ben. I think you're probably right. It's not just uh, Canadians. Um, and, and so I, here's, here's the thing. And this is, um, this is going to, I'm just feeling act, you know, extra grumpy on, a, on this fine Friday morning. Um, I, I can get behind this conversation on, um, food recalls and recall fatigue and, and Bill Hallman, who we've mic checked a bunch of times here on, on this, uh, um, podcast, uh, has has done some really fantastic systematic work on what do people glean from uh, a recall and what what matters and do they get um, saturated with information and and what does recall fatigue mean and that I I'm I'm very um, I, I I love um, the work that Bill's done and his perspective on it I'm, I don't have the same kind of ringing endorsements for um, for Sylvain Charlebois. Um, who is a, um, a uh, economics uh, professor at um, at Dalhousie University? And but be, be honest, it's because of his his French sounding name is why you don't trust him, right? It's not. It's not there. There. Um, I will. I will not get dragged into that. Uh, base <laughs> My bell at My all. Bell. Yeah. Um, but but so and and this comes back. Um, we're. You know, one of the things that's on, on my list to talk about today is um, you and I inviting um, Mark Belmere on to, to be a guest for the podcast to talk about um, his study uh, from an um, agricultural economics point of view on, on farmers markets. This may be – my frustration may just continue to be with how our discipline in food microbiology – um, approaches the, this question and, and, and that being different from how someone in, in uh, economics does, because, um, there's a lot, there's a big press release that went out, uh, from Dalhousie university that, that got picked up all over, um, Canadian press. And so I'm going to read you from, uh, from the press release, a uh, new study from Dalhousie University's Faculty of Management shows that many Canadians aren't getting enough information about food recalls. In a recent survey, most respondents underestimated the number of recalls that happened, and many had trouble correctly recollecting recalls that have occurred. Okay, no, no problem. Um, there's a report um, that uh, you know uh, is entitled "Are Canadians Experiencing Food Recall Fatigue: A Study on Food Recall Efficiency in Canada." Uh, there is a survey of over a thousand people in March of 2018. Some of the highlights: 60% of those surveyed underestimated the number of recalls by at least 100. Presented three recalls that had occurred in the last two years, and one that was fabricated. Only four accurate, accurately recalled hearing about the three real ones, but not the false one. Four percent, sorry, accurately recalled um, these recalled. Uh, most of the respondents, 72%, reported learning about recalls from traditional media. Well, very few got information from government publications. I, and so, I'm Don. I am piqued by this. This. Um, by this press release, this this has piqued my interest. I want to read. I want to read more about it. I want to know. You know, show me the show. Show me how you constructed this. Why you asked the questions you asked. How you did the analysis. Uh, there, there's a process, and and I, I'm you know coming back to to Temple Grandin. Uh, this is my bottom up thinking aspect. Although I can be in top down quite a bit. The bottom up is show me the methods. I want to know how this is done. And so, 
What I get from the press release, which I'm hoping where it says read the preliminary results, is a paper. That's what I want to see. But what I get when I click on it is a PowerPoint presentation, Don. And it's a PowerPoint presentation that has some charts and it tells me almost nothing about the methodologies. Did, did you know, Ben, that there was a PowerPoint presentation about the five-second rule that was published uh, many, many years ago um, and, and is still not published uh, in the peer-reviewed literature yet? I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I'm aware. I'm aware, Don. <laughs> I have uh, I've some strong opinions about PowerPoint presentations. Science by PowerPoint. Science by PowerPoint, uh, press release before present before publication. <laughs> we, I mean, we could, we might start our own uh, uh, self help uh, self help academic book here. Um, I, I don't know. And then, so, so that that's my that, that's my first like heartburn over this. Um, my my second one is um, uh, let me find the conversation. Um, so, um, uh, Sylvain Charlebois is, is being interviewed by, um, the national post and I'll uh, shoot you this link for our show notes. Um, and, uh, you know, so one of the things that they, they ask him about is, you know, what does this mean? What is, you know, are you concerned by this? And he, he says it's actually quite troubling, um, Quote from said Sylvain Charlebois, professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie. Quote: It means that most consumers don't feel responsible. Um, and so this is related to the 83 percent of respondents agree with the statement that food contamination primarily occurs before food reaches my home. So he said this is troubling. It means that most consumers don't feel responsible, while the majority of foodborne illnesses are due to cross contamination at home. End quote. Is there a citation after that sentence? Great, great question. <laughs> great, great question. I, I saw you. I saw you asking about this on Twitter. Yeah, and so I mean, I and this is the here's so if you if you publish a paper and you say something like this, I would expect that through the peer review process you would have a quote you would have a citation. Well, first right? of all, first of all, if I were to publish a paper and I would make a statement like that, I would put the citation in. Right. If I didn't have a citation, I wouldn't make the statement. No, it's that that is the just I don't know, Ben. I don't know. I, I is it have I just gotten really good at writing papers or was this something that I would have known when I first started? Like I can read a sentence and I can know whether it needs a citation after it or not. And my graduate students don't always seem to know this, but and, and people who, who <laughs> submit papers that I have to review sometimes don't know this. And it's just like, that's a no brainer. Give me a citation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And. So yes, I asked about the citation, um, and uh, and and the response was that he and I, I tweeted him. He just liked it, and he just said, um, "Yeah, I like I like your question." Yeah, I, he he could it could have been worse. He could have sent you the shrug emoji. <laughs> right. Well, that would have been good as well. Um, but yeah, no, no. So I don't know. I don't know the, I don't know the citation. Well, and let's, and Don, but, let, but let's come back to this statement. More than 83% of respondents agreed with the statement that food contamination primarily occurs before food reaches my home. That's a, I don't, I think I might agree with that statement, Ben. I do. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, yeah, I, I, so I, um, uh, I, I, so I, I gave another <laughs> uh, guest lecture yesterday, right before my Uber driving. Uh, and um, it was to a, a second year nutrition class in uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, also known as UNC, also known as Carolina. 
um, the, the other school in our state. Oh, there are lots of other schools, but it's our rival school. So they have a great uh, school of public health. A uh, couple of professors there um, invite me every year to for their food systems classes or food and public health classes to talk about food safety. And it's always really rewarding. I, I, it's it's a fun conversation. Um, what, you know, one of the questions that, that came up was exactly this. Where do most illnesses happen? And I think it's a flawed question because I don't think we can parse it out because it's food specific, right? Like even even the way that this is phrased in in the um, you know, by by Charlevoix is uh, where does you know food contamination primarily occurs before it reaches my home? Well, if I'm talking about a raw meat product, if I'm if that is the issue, you know, if, if any raw meat product. I think that the contamination is primarily occurring before it reaches my home because I'm unlikely to get more salmonella, campylobacter, shigatoxin-producing E. coli uh, from the slaughter, you know, on that chicken from then then would be there deposited through the slaughtering process. That's why we cook it. That's why we don't cross-contaminate it. Um, when you ask a really general question like this, and this again, okay, you know, Temple Grands make me think about bottom up and top down. This is a really generalized question. Food can what food contamination? What food? What type of contamination? It's not there in the question. So now you're forcing me to say, do I agree with it? And for the most part, I do agree with that statement. I'd be in the eighty-three um, percent. If if they said the if they asked about risk factors occurring in the home, I think that's a different type of question. Um, but yeah, if you know, fresh produce, where's my where's the contamination coming from? It, it, I don't know. Maybe it's it's all along that that line. I, I think when you ask a really simple question, you try to code it, which is what we do in surveys, and that's a limitation of them. Uh, it doesn't really tell you a whole lot, but then it gives you this jumping off point to make a what I think is a kind of stupid statement that's not rooted in any sort of data. That haha, see, it seems this is a problem. Most consumers don't feel responsible, and they're the problem. Like no, I think that's kind of bullshit. Yeah, and and I I you know this this whole thing about cross contamination. So let's say I go to the store and I buy some chicken and it's contaminated with salmonella, and I come home and I cross contaminate my leafy greens in my kitchen. Um, well, that's partly my fault, but honestly, if that uh, and we, this is we've had this discussion before on the podcast, and I've had this discussion with other food safety people is if the if the people that are making the chicken do a better job of controlling salmonella on their chicken, that's actually going to reduce my risk, uh, even if I even if I do cross contaminate. Now, I'm not I'm not going to absolve people from responsibility, but but that is that is a, a potential benefit of reducing salmonella in the chicken supply is is cross contamination. So. Right, right, and it, yeah. So, so now, now, where where cross contamination in the home would be entirely the consumer's fault would be if they had, um, let's say, to harken back to an earlier episode, what if they had a service dragon at home, right, and they didn't clean up after their service dragon, um, and then they cross contaminated their produce? I would say that is definitely on them, right? Right, right. Totally so, different situation. Right. But what does that have to do with recalls? Nothing, because right. unless, unless, well, unless unless someone has sold a batch of contaminated service dragons and they all need to be recalled, uh, you know there, that there's no food safe. That has nothing to do with food safety recalls. Absolutely right, 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 right. Yeah. Um, the the other thing, and I'll, I'll you know challenge this this whole, um, I guess the interviews are around this is, Don. I don't know. Like if you ask somebody about a recall that happened a year ago, 
and they don't remember it, does that matter? Like, like, doesn't it matter if you recalled the recall when you had the product and you got rid of it? Like there, there are lots of things that, that I do that I don't remember because I don't need to remember it anymore. Right. Like I don't, right. I don't have that product anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Why, why would you need to remember something that you did a year ago unless that was really important? Right. That, yeah. I mean, the most important thing with recalls is what is going on in the news right now? What do we, where, why do, where do we need people to take action right now to protect their health and safety? Right. And, and we want them to take that action right then. And then when the window is passed, just flush it. Who cares? Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and so here, um, explicitly from this National Post article, while more than 40% were aware of a frozen fruit and vegetable callback, which I think means recall, a callback is what, what you get when you're, um, when you're auditioning for something. I, I, think, I, I think a callback is when you mention uh, Food Safety Talk episode 90, what if it's a service dragon? I think oh, that's true, a callback. What if yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Uh, and so uh, they, they were unaware of those uh, episode callbacks in May 2016. So remember, these people were being asked about this in March of 2018. So 40% um, were aware of this recall in 2016. Fewer remembered more recent recalls on hummus and flour. And some 8.8% answered affirmatively when they asked if they remembered a potato recall, even though that none was ever issued. Well, okay, what if I just eat frozen fruits and vegetables and I don't eat hummus and I don't eat flour, so it doesn't matter? Why, why would I remember something that is out of context for me? And if you make up a recall around potatoes um, – yeah. <laughs> well, like, I, do, I do think that's useful as a control – Right. To throw in a fake recall that didn't actually happen. I mean, I like the idea of that, you know, but but I think that the implications and and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things to criticize, but I like the I, on it on its face of it. I like the idea of throwing in something fake to see to to to, to gauge that in, in the mind of the res- respondent. Right. But there's a lot to not like about this as well. Yeah. Well, and also want to highlight that. It, it, so here's here's the problem with not seeing the methodology and the and the questions. We don't even know what the outbreak was that they asked about. Um, the you know the the fake fake one that they um, that they made up and I and I can't find it. You know, sort of in this um, in the PowerPoint presentation either. Um, so uh, so what? The, the, actually, now I can find it because I was looking for something more specific. Thinking about the last two years, have you heard anything about potatoes being recalled in Canada? That's the question, Don. 8% said yes. 94% said no. They were surprised that 8% said yes. But I want to highlight Exhibit 1. I'm feeling like a lawyer today, Don. Huh. Exhibit 1. Um, a uh, New York Post is the first thing that came up in, in uh, my Google search. Chopped golf balls in hash browns prompts recall from April 22nd, 2017. This was a North American <laughs> recall that I got called about that I thought was really notable. That was funny because it was likely someone just hitting golf balls uh, you know, near a potato field in Prince Edward Island, which is what I wrote about on Barf Blog because I grew up in the summers. Um, when I was a kid hitting golf balls off the front porch of a, a house into a potato field. So, uh, so what you're saying, Ben, is the fact that when you mentioned a potato recall and I thought to myself, you know, 
I seem to remember something. Maybe I'm in that 8%. It's not even, so I, I retract my earlier praise. It's not even a good example as a control because it's true. There was a recall. Right. Oh there my was God. A recall, just not in Canada. Oh, well, Prince Edward was, Island, that's Canada. Well, yeah, oh, but the but recall wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, North yeah. America. It was yeah, McCain's Foods USA recall. Okay. But but that but so here's the thing is, can I parse out whether the recall was in Canada or the US if I get um if my my news consumption is North American? And well, it and, is. You and know, you I know, grew up in Canada. Well, but you know that Canadians are not allowed to read anything about what goes on in the United States. I think that's in the, your constitution. You're you're well, just <laughs> Yeah. I mean not since NAFTA. <laughs> Um, so, but I mean, this is the, like, that's, that's the thing. So anyway, I, I can rant on and on and, and I won't cause it makes me frustrated and I don't, I don't have a good answer. I just don't think it, maybe this is, this is just the difference between our disciplines. <laughs> is it? I don't Should know. Talk to, I don't know. I don't know, I don't Don. Know. I don't know. <sighs> so moving on, let's talk about things that are less, you know, less, uh, controversial in my mind. Yeah. So I, I do, I feel, I feel bad. I feel bad if we don't get to all the listener feedback. So I really want to do, I want to do some rapid feedback and I absolutely want to, to, to make sure to, to talk about flour, um, and people who do their math homework. <laughs> but, but <laughs> I want to start with the oldest one, um, which is, uh, from, from someone, I, I have to say, you know, uh, you can read my message, but not my name. Um, uh, 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 let's see something, something about, um, Oh yes, you uh, please call me Hobbit Feet since I'm from New Zealand. So so thank you, uh, thank you, listener, for listening and giving us a code name. So so dear Hobbit Feet, thank you so much for your message. Um, okay, so this is there's actually four bits of feedback, and so I'm going to move through this really really quickly. Uh, first point, and so that they and actually this is really good feedback on episode 140, uh, which uh, featured uh, Gordon um, uh, Gordon Hayburn. Um, and, and, and from another episode that they, they can't recall. And so the first point is about CCPs, and the person writes, the company I work for produces raw material for finished consumer goods. Uh, we get a lot of customers which require them to have a metal detector as a CCP, even though they think historically it's not. And that's okay, because and companies do that, right? And so, you know, and we've had this discussion when I've taught HACCP classes, is that, you know, if the customer wants a metal detector, you put in a metal detector and you make it a CCP because that's what the customer wants. Um, uh, the second one is about food safety culture versus food safety policing and uh, good the praise for, for Gordon Hayburn uh, uh, because the food safety culture is embedded in the minds of the production workers. Of course, Gordon will never hear this because he doesn't listen to the podcast, but that's okay. Um, uh, there seems to be consensus that QA personnel are enforcers and we become bad guys when we are present on the floor, but that mindset need to be, needs to be changed. And I absolutely agree, and it's something that I noticed from the very beginning in my days in food safety, walking into plants is that there is often this controversial uh, animosity between QA people and, and production people. Uh, and, and it's best to try to find ways to get rid of that. Um, uh, the third point uh, from Hobbit Feet is uh, recruiting, talents, uh, recruiting talents into food safety. Uh, as a person who is relatively new to food safety, they've only been in the industry for four years, uh, what they see in their cohort is a lot more attraction towards new product development than QA food safety. And I 
I absolutely this comment resonated with me because when I was an undergrad, oh so many years ago, all of my food science uh, compatriots, undergrad major uh, food science major compatriots, they all wanted to get a job in product development, and I didn't even realize that QA and food safety was a thing until I took a, a food micro class, and then it was like, oh wow, I am hooked. This is this is really for me. And so uh, they ask, is this the same thing? Is this is this how is this in the U.S.? Are you do you have a similar trend? And I think so. Um, although, thanks to uh, the elevated uh, interest in food safety, you know, on because of recalls and, and whatnot, I think that there is more interest in going into that. Although I still think at the undergraduate level, people want to make be you know the person that comes up with the new uh, the new Cool Ranch Doritos um, rather than the one that keeps people from getting sick. But but that's certainly something that I've seen. And then uh, fourth point, and then I'll let you talk, Ben. Uh, fourth point of feedback, and it's more a question than anything else regarding food safety inspection grades. Uh, uh, the listener writes that you and I have been talking about this for a couple of episodes, and oh, and they want to to the listener wants to share the grading system that the Auckland Council does for food businesses. They publish grades for all 90 eateries in the region, and we will link to the most recent uh, publication. And they share this with newspapers, um, and uh, I think it's that's fantastic. I mean, that's uh, that's we've talked about that. Um, and again, uh, uh, naming and shaming uh, is something that uh, we've talked about. Um, it's, it's not uh, always evenly distributed in the U.S. It happens in some places and, and not in other places. And so thank you, uh, uh, thank you, Hop at Feet, for the very long e- email. I did. I did want to give you um, some some feedback, Ben. Anything to add? Uh, no, just uh, to Hop at Feet's question um, about um, do we have uh, the same kind of name and shame protocol? And yeah, in, in some cases, in some jurisdictions, yes. I, I've talked a little bit about what we do here in North Carolina and, and Wake County, and, and many of the counties in, in North Carolina subscribe to a service where. Um, their uh, um, history of inspection reports uh, goes online, and it's there for someone to view, you know, for forever. Um, and you can search; it's a really nice, like, searchable system. Um, you can; it's got a mobile phone interface that's really good, so you could do it. What you know, whenever you're you're at a spot, you can actually subscribe to alerts um, as well. So you can put in like if your favorite uh, restaurant has uh, drops below a certain grade, you'll get a message on it. Um, and so that, that kind of system I, I really like, um, we also have, uh, many local TV station and newspapers, uh, will, will just take an assortment of recent inspections and publish those, especially the notable places that have had negative, uh, inspections. And yeah, I'm hundred percent in, in uh, behind all name and shame. That's my thing. Uh, I love, I, I mean, I think it. Um, it really matters. And and just to, to circle back around to the blockchain conversation, I think this is a much bigger incentive to changing food safety behaviors than the preserving the data uh, from in that farm to fork continuum. I think this says, hey, um, anybody can see this. They're going to know if you have a, a bad score. So if you're fine with that, you're fine with it. But if not, and you want to make sure that that score looks good or that grade looks good, then, um, you better do what you can to, um, in your restaurant or in your facility to make sure that you're not, you're not getting it. Um, someone on scores, um, uh, someone tweeted at us, uh, maybe just, just me, um, earlier this, this week. Um, and let me find it. And it was about scores. 
and it was related to uh, preserving um, data integrity. Um, and so it was from uh, so it was um, Tar Heel fan uh, Brett Weed, who who we know from from the Twitter. Um, he tweeted at both of us, guys, we're a model for something. Food regulation, FTW. Um, and it's uh, something from uh, a tweet from Eric Geller, um, who's a, a cybersecurity reporter at Politico. And he he wrote uh, or he tweeted something from uh, New York Times saying, quote, the simple grading system used by restaurant regulators can and should be a model to inform the public about the digital security of businesses that store sensitive consumer data. Um, also like I, you know, I would think that even more important than a restaurant grade that if I, you know, want, if, if I could see that target, it got a C for instance, for protecting my, um, personal information from their credit card system, uh, that I might not want to shop at target anymore for money reasons, not just public health reasons. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so yeah, good, good job. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Hobbit feet. Yeah, and we will, and we will link. Uh, we will link to the New York Times article that um, Tar Heel fan uh, sent to us. So, simple proposal to help fix, fix corporate America's cybersecurity problem. Hey, I want to ask you about lobsters, Ben. Oh, lobsters! So uh, th- this is uh, repeat feedback, uh, and I'll, I'll we'll, we'll keep it short. Um, the 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 question. There's a, a lot to love in this email, including the the the, the photo. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, so uh, I recently read an article on Dollar Shave Club about how the Swiss have banned cooking live lobsters on the grounds that it is inhumane. Uh, why are we still boiling lobsters alive? And we will link to that article. Um, uh, while I do buy my razors from them, I'm not sure I trust their reporting on food cooking message. Good idea. Um, if I recall correctly, Julia Child was an advocate to cut the lobster in half and grill it as the method of cooking. I wonder your thoughts on how to safely prepare a lobster and whether there's an increased risk in killing the lobster before cooking it. Does cutting the lobster in half with a kitchen knife increase the risk of cross-contamination, either in a home or professional kitchen? Is there a chance that the U.S. will follow suit and change how we cook lobsters? I think the answer to that is probably not anytime soon. So, and again, thanks for the great feedback and, 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 and you're, you're you know, um, um, telling us you like the show and for sending us an email. So, so Ben, uh, what do you think about lobster cooking? So uh, yeah, no, I I, um, I I agree with your the comment that you sent back on um, cutting the lobster in half with kitchen knife is no more risky than cutting chicken uh, in a in a in a kitchen. Um, I, I would I actually think it's probably less risky because I think about what are the target pathogens that we worry about in in a seafood um, setting and is it um, is the gut system of a lobster really the place that we're worried about like something like say vibrio or parasites and um so i I don't think that the cross-contamination factor is any different um if we're handling some sort of a law a live or already dead um you know fresh lobster uh i i think we're the the risk is not is not increased by you know cutting open the um, the, the middle part of, of it and, and essentially eviscerating it. Um, that's what we're trying to do when we remove the sand sack. Um, uh, I believe anyway, hopefully not mixing up my lobster biology too much. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I also, um, I've, I've only cooked for, um, like lo- fresh lobster, live lobster, uh, once, um, 
I, I may have mentioned, but the uh, lovely Danielle, my wife, is um, allergic to uh, shellfish and uh, both uh, bivalve and other types of shellfish. So oh. we don't. Yeah, I don't get I to. Not, eat I don't think I knew that. Ah, yeah. So not like. Uh, it's it's one of those allergies that uh, so far in, in the time that I've known her is only presented as like really bad cramps and, and vomit and diarrhea for a day afterwards, not like go to the hospital and get a tracheotomy bad. Um, but uh, yeah, we just we just don't we don't handle this uh, this stuff. But we did have one um, New Year's Eve uh, party dinner that we hosted at our house and we, we did uh, lobster and I used the Julia Child method and huh. grilled them. And yeah. And, 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 um, not, you know, and knew it was the Julia Child method when I did it. Not like, Oh, that's now I know it's the Julia Child method. That's what, that's where I went to, to find out how we should do this. It was huh. soon after, uh, the uh, movie, Julia, Julie and Julia, Julia mm-hmm. and I, yep. whatever yep. that movie was, yep. was, it came out. So cool. Yeah, so I don't. I agree. I don't think. Um, I don't think it's a difference either way. Cool. Well, um, uh, one uh, more, a little bit of feedback. There's not a question here, uh, but somebody says uh, they just found out about the podcast uh, after my appearance on Dubai Friday. So thank you uh, for that. Uh, name withheld. Um, uh, they they state that they're a big fan, and it's one of the few that I play at one x speed. And so, wow, that is. Uh, I mean, that's just. I, I you can't get higher praise than that. Um, so, uh, and then they also ask about T-shirts, uh, and I think that we probably ought to do uh, maybe some sort of an open um, t-shirt run where anybody can can buy them, um, maybe uh, running up to IAFP. So so thanks. Um, we uh, we probably won't uh, ever adverti- have advertising on the podcast, although we have thought about it from time to time because we have the, the benefit of being uh, tenured academics. So thanks, uh, Name Withheld, um, for your very kind uh, and generous feedback. Uh, we're glad you found the show, and uh, and thanks for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you, uh, so uh, as an aside, do you listen to a lot of podcasts on one, one and a half speed or two speed or I, um, I, I listen I, to everything on one. I, I do. The only thing I use overcast, uh, as my podcast, uh, listening device of choice. And I do use smart speed, which basically mm. speeds things up because it shortens the silences. Um, but I, I find it a little bit distracting. Um, uh, and and honestly, my solution when I get too many podcasts to listen to is just to not listen to them. Um, and right now I've gotten, it's weird if I'm at home and I'm doing like regular dog walks and, and various things, I can pretty much keep up with my normal flow, but then I start traveling. Um, and then I get out of that, that habit and, uh, and I get behind, um, and it's sort of, and it sort of ebbs and flows, but right now I've got, uh, just way too many and, and I'll have to go and do and do some, um, some purging cause I've got, I don't know, more than a screenful. Um, so, which is, which is too bad, but yeah, that's what you got to do. So, yeah, I, I just don't, um, I, I don't know. I like, I like the one speed sound and every once in a while, my, my watch, if I'm playing a podcast on my phone in my car and I like bang my watch or touch it, it, it moves it to the wrong speed and it takes me like it's not immediate that I recognize it. And I'm like, wait, something's going on with my head. Some like I'm, I must have a verdict. Something's wrong with me. And then I'm like, Oh no, it's the speed of the podcast is wrong. It's not, it's not me. So, um, Oh, cool. So, uh, a couple more little ones, uh, here on, uh, um, uh, uh, feedback. Um, 
So I wanted to uh, uh, get you know, this one came from uh, someone who says uh, share all details freely. And this is from uh, Mary Muth. Um, and so she, she writes, hi, Don and Ben thought this recent article in the Washington post on glitter and foods might be of interest. So we will link to this, um, uh, in show notes. And this is something that, uh, you know, continues on our glitter discussion, which is maybe, I mean, the podcast uh, topic for 2018 for us has been (laughs) glitter. I think so. Uh, so uh, yet another thing, um, in here, uh, you know, good, good job in the, um, by, uh, Maura Judkus, uh, from the, uh, Washington post, uh, talking about the difference between edible and non-toxic glitter, um, and has a really nice picture of glitter on top of a pizza, which looks terrible. I, who would uh, want to eat that? That's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so anyway, uh, they do a good job, um, or she does a good job just sort of going over, uh, glitter and all the, all the wrong places. Um, and so Mary says, also, I've got a question. As Ben knows, I'm working out of RTI's DC office for the year. Uh, so my husband and I are getting a chance to sample a lot of the great restaurants here. It seems that putting eggs with runny yolks on foods is a hot trend. If I realize it in time, I ask them to cook the egg well done, mostly because I don't like slimy yellow liquids on my food. But sometimes I forget my food arrives and I eat it anyway. So my question is, how risky is this? Um, by the way, I also do research on food waste, so there's a trade-off uh, uh, once that it's already arrived on my plate. Um, and so, uh, I mean, you, you, uh, uh, your answer to, to Mary, we'll, we'll start here, um, is that it's, you know, one in 10,000 eggs um, is the – is we're – estimate that there's salmonella in about one in 10,000 eggs. Um, and so that's, you know, the, uh, a calculation um, issue and that doesn't change time after time. It's always kind of a one in 10,000 chance that there might be salmonella. Um, you write that you cook your eggs a little runny. Um, and, uh, I agree with you in, by saying it's, it's pretty low risk, but that's, you know, I, I like to point out in, in these types of conversations that that's the risk management decision that you, that I, I make a similar, um, management decision. I like mine, a, a f- sort of firm, but a little bit of give in my, uh, egg. I don't like it to run out when I open it up, but I like it to be kind of gelatinous, but not well, well done, kind of hard and, and a, a different color yellow. Um, but I would cook that differently if I was cooking it for, uh, uh, you know, someone who was immunocompromised or my kid or my parents even, uh, as they're both, um, my, my dad reaches the age of 70 this year. Uh, it's, uh, the, so I, you know, the, the, it's all about, uh, risk management. Yeah, and you know, it's uh, the the whole idea of uh, aging immune systems was brought home recently. I was talking to my mom uh, last week, and uh, she mentioned that she got a cold, and then my dad got got sick, and it just they she just said it just takes us longer to get better when we get sick, and that's you know that's just the fact of uh, fact of life is that your immune system is just not as good as you age, and so you should have different uh, risk management uh, factors so and risk management uh, approaches. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, where to go next, Don? Well, let's talk about uh, not raw cookie dough. Uh, oh, and so this uh, this message uh, is from uh, Deep Flower, and it says, uh, "Hi, Zippy and Skippy." So, <laughs> so thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Um, uh, because apparently, I am doing my very best, as I said I would, Ben, to spread uh, your nickname of Zippy because I have uh, rendered your name as Zippy um, in my uh, in my email uh, contacts database, and so it perpetuates it pr- pr- propagates 
relates uh, to other people. So it it's um, kind of scares people sometimes too. Like I'll get a message that you're not on saying, I don't know how to change this, but it just sounds like I'm emailing Zippy Chapman. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, I guess I could change it back and eventually no. it'll probably get fixed, but yeah. I, I like what you're doing. Keep it up. Um, uh, okay. So let's see. So, um, uh, right. So, so thanks for the surprise follow-up. I appreciate it. Uh, cause you talked about it in the previous episode, just from the sensory data sample size one, I tried some of it. The, the dough texture feels different than your average cookie dough batch. I wonder if they heat the dough base to get a partial chemical change to the flour. Uh, the added moisture would help, would help with lethality. That's speculation. Uh, my first assumption was also just pasteurized eggs. Also, this person writes, I own one of those Dyson hairdryer contraptions. It's a great little machine, not $400 great, but you can buy them open box, aka returned for about half the cost uh, for your good husbanding and or food safety needs. Um, uh, and then finally, this person says that they're moving to Charleston and they're going to check out uh, the run that you did. And so this is, uh, again, this is feedback about uh, flour and about their original uh, feedback, which we I think we talked about on the, on the last episode. So uh, anyway, um, that's uh, some feedback from uh, Deep Flower. Deep Flower, and this, um, you know, does kind of connect to uh, another another message that we got just yesterday. Yes. Um, so uh, this comes from uh, a, a friend of the show, friend of ours, uh, someone who comes uh, when when she uh, comes to North Carolina, she comes to visit uh, from Caitlin uh, Kasuli. Uh, greetings, esteemed podcasters. Slowly climb my way back into being caught up. Um, you know, going back to FSC 148, where you discussed oven baking flour. I contributed to a manuscript back in 2016 on modeling thermal inactivation in wheat flour. Uh, so I decided to put my model for the test that was uh, to, for the case that was discussed. Unfortunately, given the limitations I had to make, I can't assume the results are accurate. But she tried to make some worst case assumptions. So, um, what is what? I, Don, you're gonna have to help me with. You're the model guy. What do we got here? Right. So, and, we'll, and we will link to uh, both uh, the article that uh, Caitlin uh, co-authored, as well as another article that she used in her in her uh, uh, her calculations. Um, and I will. So I'll, I'll walk you through. I'll walk you through her her math. Um, so basically, uh, oh wait, got to find the right page here. So she 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 she's old school. She did this uh, on a uh, pencil and paper or pen and paper and then uh, took a photograph. And so basically what she does is she takes the uh, the, the the data from Smith et al 2016 and uh, the D values and the Z values and then she uses that to extrapolate to um, well there's a couple of extrapolations here, right? So She's extrapolating to temperatures beyond the range that they did in their research, okay, but then also extrapolating to water activities beyond the range that they used in their research. And so basically from this, she comes up with the uh, what is essentially the D value for dry flour. So there's, a, there's, there's two extrapolations there. Um, which, which may, you know, which, 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 and, and, and let me point out that those are extrapolations outside the range where the model was created. And so when you're developing a model, let's say you're developing a model and you want to predict something that happens between the value between two and eight, it doesn't matter what two and eight are. If you, if you want to, to interpolate between two and eight in your model, you can do that. If you want to predict what happens at nine or at one, which are outside the range of two to eight, 
then you you have to be a little bit careful because you don't really know, uh, and and you really don't even know what 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 happens between two and eight unless you unless you have multiple data points along in there. So there there's some extrapolation there. But basically, um, she she does that extrapolation and then she makes some very um, uh, conservative assumptions about worst case uh, water activities and basically comes out with. If you followed this flour baking, so baking flour at 350 degrees Fahrenheit for five minutes, she comes up with a log reduction of uh, almost 75,000. So, so what, that, what that says is <laughs> that, that if this is true, that this actually, despite the fact that we kind of bash this as not being accurate, um, uh, this does say uh, that that is uh, quite an effective log reduction. Now, what you really need to do is you really need to take some flour, you need to inoculate it with salmonella and or uh, pathogenic E. coli, and then you need to, to basically heat that flour in an oven and make sure that, that, you, that you actually get uh, log reductions that approximate that. I am still, I'm still skeptical. Um, that that it's that effective, but um, I could be wrong, and 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 so huge thanks to Caitlin for actually doing the math, um, uh, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we yeah, really appreciate this. This is awesome. Yeah, and then we will link to um, both the uh, JFP article as well as uh, the other JFP article that that Caitlin used in her in her calculations. So so thank you for that, Caitlin. Um, let's see. Okay. So, uh, sour milk and triple sinks. Uh, so, uh, you can read my message, but not my name. I think this is deep new England. Yes. Uh, have a comment about your response to the question of using sour milk and then a question about, um, three bay, uh, wash stations. So, uh, Oh, and and I am completely addicted to the podcast, and I look forward to listening to it. So thank you, uh, Deep uh, Deep New England. We we appreciate that. Um, I'm sure there's a twelve step program somewhere. Um, so uh, uh, your response to using soured milk missed the point of food safety. Don was so overwhelmed with revulsion. Um, yeah, no, I I get that. I get that. Um, uh, on the rare occasions when our milk has gone off, I bake with it. The sour taste is no longer detectable. Um, don't you? I don't feel you actually answered the food safety issue, would there be an acceptable food safety risk? Um, so first of all, my, my point to reiterate was not that the milk, I think that the milk might not actually be sour, right? Because if you get pseudomonads growing in that milk, they are not going to make it sour. They are just going to make it putrid. Okay. And so that was my, that was my, my argument is that you can't count on the milk to be sour. However, let's say that that milk was contaminated with listeria. We know that pasteurized milk has some low level of listeria, some small fraction of the time. Um, uh, the food safety risks of cooking with that spoiled milk are minimal if the food is fully cooked. So, so I, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry if we missed the point, but but the food safety risks, I think, are minimal. Um, and then the second point, and then, Ben, I'll let you weigh in on both of these. Um, uh, uh, let's see. On a different note, do you think that an alternative three-bay sink setup with three basins, hot soapy water, clean rinse water, and sanitizer would be safe for a small grocery store produce department to use for cleaning and sanitizing knives? This store's only three-bay sinks are in the distant meat department or in the deli, and the solution this solution was proposed by staff members to save time and frequent walks to the deli to clean and sanitize the knives. Um, 
I think it's a perfectly fine solution. It's what we used. I, I mentioned in my response to, to Deep New England. Uh, this is what we do on campouts with the Boy Scouts. It works absolutely just fine. Um, the local health inspector found this to be not acceptable. He thought they should just buy more knives. Um, so <laughs> that's great. Thanks. Thanks for that that helpful well, advice. I don't understand health. that. Um, oh, well, buy, buy more knives so that you could have some dirty and then you could uh, take the time to clean them later. I don't know. I get, it's like I get that, but it doesn't really like – yeah, they're coming up with this – what I think is a really practical solution, right? Like what more knives versus um, let's do this here because it's closer. And I agree. I, I like – I like the three basin alternative solution for this case. I've seen it a lot used a lot in um, temporary events um, and setups sort of all throughout um, like uh, festivals. Um, it, it's it, it accomplishes the the same thing. It adds a little extra layer of monitoring um, and you have to deal with how do you, what are you going to do with the water, um, once it's done, but uh, no, none of those things, you know, make it. So it's, um, it, it would be something that I, I wouldn't recommend. I like, I like this idea. Cool. Very good. And she also uh, sends a, a link to uh, Why Milk Curdles, which we will link to, and then also um, uh, the uh, University of Rhode Island um, Food Safety Education Program, uh, Farmers Markets um, Sanitation, which is a, which is a great a great uh, looking uh, fact sheet. Which we will and 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 yeah, good good information. We will link to that. So um, two more bits of feedback. Uh, first of all, uh, free range and grass fed. And so uh, the person, this is a, a listener who writes. Uh, Please share all details freely. So thank you, Eileen, for that. Um, I've been catching up on this year's most recent episodes over the past couple of weeks. I just listened to episode 149, and I was somewhat sad because I thought the title was indicating some talk on food safety issues. <laughs> um, the, the title of the episode was um, uh, Free Range and Grass-Fed Unicorns, um, and there was nothing about uh, free range or grass-fed uh, uh, food. Um, and so uh, the person says, um, uh, non-traditionally, highly traditionally raised cattle uh, – uh, are there food safety? Di- are there different food safety challenges from beef raised in Canada or the U.S. where parasitic infections might not be as prevalent? Um, you know, it's probably too late in the show to get into food safety risks related to uh, pasturing processes for cattle. Um, but my understanding, I have not seen any, uh, all of the scientific evidence I've seen shows that the risks are equivocal. In other words, get, buying free range and grass fed beef does not lower your food safety risk. Um, do you, uh, do you concur? Do you have any thoughts, Ben? I concur, concur. Um, and I'll point, I'll find, uh, um, a, a link here to send for show notes, but, um, my, my friend and colleague, Dave Renter from, uh, Kansas state university, he was part of, uh, the, uh, stack cap grant, uh, project that I was on. Um, he's done a, a bunch of work in this area and I think it, the, the data that he's got you know, supports, um, that, um, that statement it's, you know, there, what we, what we do know is that there are certain times of year where, um, uh, cattle are more likely to shed, um, E. coli 157 and other shigatoxin producing E. coli's. Um, there are environmental factors that lead to that. Uh, as well, there are some cows that are just happen to be super shedders that we don't have a good sense of why and grass fed versus not, not grass fed does not seem to be a factor in either of those two, um, things. And those are, I, I, I think from, uh, from the work that he's done, uh, 
that's more the those factors are are more important than um, the what you know what what uh, the animals are being fed. Grass fed beef, I think, has a totally different meat texture and quality, but it's not a safety issue. Right. And we will, uh, whether you can find the article or not, we will definitely link uh, to David's page on the K-State University website, which does list um, some selected publications. And so by all means, uh, you can check that out. And then I think uh, the last bit of feedback is going to be your favorite topic, Ben, Um, uh, Gleneth Paltrow. Um, So uh, listener writes, uh, I enjoy listening to your podcast. They are amazing and packing so much information and so many references into an otherwise rambunctious (laughs) ramble into the jungle of food safety. Dang, I think that's an episode title. Um, uh, The (laughs) podcast style also caters to attention spans that flow in and flow out, for example, while driving or doing the dishes. Dear listener, um, you should be hanging on our every word. Uh, Your attention should not be flowing in and out, um, uh, only to avoid uh, automobile accidents or or, uh, cutting yourself with a knife. But anyway, thank you. Um, So uh, taking on Ms. Paltrow, it could be interesting for Dr. Chapman to review the following uh, New York Times uh, recipe. Um, uh, uh, besides the barely cooked eggs and raw produce garnish, can Dr. Chapman comment on the meatball messaging, <laughs> visual monitoring of bite size chilled an hour overnight after reaching firm and opaque, uh, in two to three minutes after adding the last one, such vivid detail, uh, perhaps the time and temperature covered is typical. Uh, would Dr. Chapman have a predictive model? The answer is no, I don't think so. Um, but Ben, do you have any comments on Thai rice soup with pork cilantro meatballs? Uh, you use a... The- Cook into 165 degrees and use a thermometer. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. I, yeah, you know, follow the recipe, but also use a tip-sensitive digital thermometer. Yeah, and and so I just you know the, I do have a, a couple more things. We're um, developing um, a plan for an experiment um, next year where we're going to look at meatballs um, and. Uh, look at how people handle meatballs, how they make them and whether they take the temperature and all that good stuff. Um, and one of the things that we've been talking about in the, in the project team discussions is, you know, we'll, we'll have the ability to see whether people take the temperature of one meatball. We're going to ask them to make multiple meatballs. Are they going to take one temperature of one? Are they going to take some, are they going to take temperature of all? And we got into a discussion, um, with, you know, with, with some folks on the team, like, do you actually take the temperature of every meatball that you would, that you would make? And I'm nerdy, Don, the answer to that is yes. I, I, I take the temperature of every chicken nugget I cook for my kids and every meatball. And I, I, I don't, I mean, maybe I should start tracking this, but I do see variability when I make these things, like maybe five or 10 degrees difference between meatballs that are cooked in different parts of the pan. And if I'm, you know, this one's in a, um, in a pan, but, um, (laughs) in the like different ways that you bake them, you get variability. So I say, temp them all, temp them all, temp them all. Let God sort them out. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'm always amazed. I, I, I will often temp um, uh, lasagna or other solid foods, not for food safety, but just on reheating leftovers. And I'm always amazed, like two pieces of lasagna, approximately the same size in the same toaster oven, multiple places are wildly different in terms of temperature. So um, yeah. it's, it's, it's just, it, it does, it does make me uh, uh, think about that and scratch my head. So Anyway, uh, I, uh, I, I said I had a hard out. Um, I also said I wanted to cover all the listener feedback, and I think we did that. Um, so I've got a, a hard out in about eight minutes. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to add uh, for the good of the order? 
No, boom. Uh, everything is good. And, uh, I think that's, uh, another episode of food safety talk. Um, I think probably right now, uh, the music is, is just coming up. So as, uh, as, as the music fades us out, I do want to remind everybody, please do. Um, we haven't uh, made this uh, plea in a while. Please do rate us on iTunes. I think that the, the days of us being a top rated, uh, podcast, uh, top ranked podcast on iTunes are long since passed since we didn't have a meteoric rise. Um, but we can still uh, maintain our, our good ratings and it might help people find the show. So if you haven't, uh, uh, rated the show on iTunes, please do that. Uh, I think it helps. Uh, that's what everybody says. But uh, anyway, uh, we would we would love to see your uh, see your feedback and and please do uh, you know uh, rate us in iTunes. But please please keep sending us the feedback. We we're going to do our very best to always answer all the feedback. Although it is getting to where it turns into uh, a major part of the show. But I, I I don't know about you, Ben, but I love hearing from people. I do too. Uh, yeah, uh, both in feedback and rating. So so keep it up. Um, and if you uh, you want us to come to your your neighborhood, uh, let us know. We're going we're going on the road in June to Michigan, so uh, we we we're trying to I guess tick off all the M states uh, first because we did Minnesota last year. Maybe Maine. Someone in Maine wants to have us. I Minnesota, think, uh, uh, or I mean Massachusetts, 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 Mississippi, yeah. Missouri. Mississippi. Start with the M's. Uh, <laughs> that's it. All right, all right, Don. Bye bye. Bye bye. So this one's yours. It is. Um, I did. I agree. Uh, I know we're getting quicker at some of the uh, titles, but "Rambunctious Ramble in the Jungle" is awesome. I think that should be our show title. Oh, all right. Well, that that does help us get it posted faster. So we'll go for that. Uh, that's it, I guess. Uh, did you? You were like crystal clear on my audio this time. Last time it was way like you got robotic-y a bunch of times. Huh. Um, so I don't know if it if I sounded good on your side, but yeah, it, after you turned off Dropbox, it was great. Oh, there you go. Turn, didn't have, turn didn't off have any problems. I'm going to turn my Dropbox back on. Um, all right. So when do you want to do this again? Okay, let's see. Um. do you? Okay, so Fridays are not always good for you. Yeah, two weeks from yesterday is I could do the afternoon. Perfect. So can I? I have a meeting that goes uh, goes ten till three, but 
what if I said I was going to leave and do a podcast at, say, 2 o'clock? <laughs> how, does that, how does that hit you? Yeah, 2 o'clock is fine. Yeah. It's a, it's like, no, truthfully, Don, no meeting should go from 10 to 3. That's a long – I have a meeting from 9 to noon, um, but, but yeah, 10 to 3 is brutal. Yeah. So I'm, they're bringing in lunch, but I think 10 to 2 is, is more realistic. Cool. For me. Uh, <laughs> what, that's 151. There was – that was our one. That was our 150th uh, anniversary. Oh, was it? Oh my gosh, yeah. we forgot to celebrate. I just shook a bunch of water. I didn't have anything else to sound. There was no shaker. So, oh, all right. Oh, oh by the way, I want to. I want to just say that uh, when I saw Linda in Des Moines this week, she said she wanted to be a guest. Uh, I told her that uh, we were recording today, and she said she wasn't available. And she asked when we were recording next, and I said I don't know, um, um, but but we'll let you know. Um, you know, and do you? And she said, "Do you record on a regular schedule?" And I said, "No." <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Oh, do you want me to reach out to Mark Belmere too? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, because he. Yeah, I think that would be. Let's let's have so I could let him know. Okay, that's that's fine. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, that's it. Go to your go to your meeting. Thanks. Please thank your student again for. Allowing us to change our time. Oh, it's only an undergrad. It's okay. No, don't say that. Don. <laughs> Thank them. Okay. Be nice to them. I, I will. I will. This this student may turn into a grad student at some time. So that's true. Uh, they, they might. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.